Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, you are listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. We start off today with news from Lafayette. Care about every single word. Author Matt De La Pena revealed some of the secrets hidden in his picture books to students at Lafayette's Escuela Bilingue Pioneer, from the blue cats scattered on the pages in one book to the colors and symbols of the American flag incorporated in the cover image of another. He showed students how to, quote, read, unquote, the pictures to gain a deeper understanding of the story, shared information about his background growing up in San Diego to a Mexican father and white mother, and he talked about how to be, how he became an author. Everyone in here, we all have incredible journeys in our family background, he said. Our story sits on top of the stories that come before us. De La Pena spoke to students on February 2nd at Pioneer, Alicia, Alicia Sanchez and Ryan Elementary Schools, as well as Angevine Middle School, Centaurus High School, and the Lafayette Public Library on February 1st. The author talks were planned by Centaurus language teacher Cassidy Katsanes and Centaurus librarian Shoshana Turgel. They use grants from Impact on Education to cover his speaker's fees, while the Friends of the Lafayette Public Library donated copies of his books. Most of these books are available in both English and Spanish. Everyone at the event will benefit from engaging in books that give them windows to other cultures as well as mirrors to their own experiences, Kasani said. De La Pena is the author of seven young adult novels, including Mexican White Boy and Superman Dawnbreaker, as well as six picture books. A pioneer, every first through fifth grade student picked out one of these picture books and then voted for their favorite. De La Pena read the top vote-getter, which was Milo Saves the World, during his talk at the school. The book follows a young boy named Milo riding the subway to visit his mother, who is in jail. As he rides, he draws pictures of the people he sees on the subway, imagining their lives based on their faces and their clothes. If you really want to understand Milo, don't just listen to what he says. Look at his drawings, De La Pena told the students. Near the end of the book, Milo looks at himself in the mirror, and he wonders if those around him can see who he really is, and he, imagine, or he imagines happier stories than those that he originally drew. Maybe you can't really know anyone by just looking at their face, De La Pena said. Along with reading... The, in readying the book, he showed students a photo of his grandparents in Mexico before they traveled five miles across the border to the United States. He also talked about living with his parents in, in their basement until he was five years old. While his family didn't have much money, he said, his dad was one of the hardest working people I know. And his mom really looked at me and my two sisters like we were something important. He said he went to college on a basketball scholarship, but he didn't think he was good enough to play professionally. He liked to read, and he started to wonder if he could write. 
he ended up going to graduate school for creative writing. As a young student, he said he usually wrote only one draft for writing assignments, but noticed that those who got better grades wrote more than one draft. As an author, he said he spends more time on revisions than on the first draft of a book. For one of these novels, he wrote, get this, 104 drafts. As an author, you are going to care about every single word, he said. Questions posed by the students included De La Pena's age, 90. He joked the ages of his two children, which are 5 and 9, how old he was when he published his first book, he was 28, where he lives, he lives in San Diego, and his favorite picture books, which are Carmela Full of Wishes. Pioneer librarian David Smith said he was excited about the opportunity to bring in an author who writes about diverse characters and experiences. His books are so relatable to so many different kids, he said. Fifth graders Ryland Bradley and Eli McCormick were among a small group of students who had their copies of Milo Imagines the World signed by Dila Pena. Ryland said that he likes learning about the blue cats all over the book and a touch added by the illustrator and vowed to write 1,000 rough drafts to improve his writing. Eli said it was a little nerve-wracking to have his book signed. It's meeting someone known for doing something amazing, he said. In more Lafayette news, Lafayette is to start study for a second water treatment plant. The Lafayette City Council unanimously approved a contract for a second water treatment plant pre-design study during its Tuesday meeting. Principal Utilities Engineer Melanie Asquith presented the contract with Hazen and Sawyer for a study to determine a site and design for an additional water treatment plant. Asquith said that in 2004, a water demand study indicated Lafayette needed an additional 8 to 10 million gallons of water per day. And a 2021 comprehensive plan confirmed that the city would have an increase in water demand as it continues to grow. The current baseline water treatment plants sees demand averages of 2 million gallons per day in the winter and up to 10 million gallons per day in the summer. Treatment plants are not designed to run at full capacity for extended periods of time, Asquith said. She explained that in the winter, staff are able to complete some maintenance on the plant, but staff are ne never able to fully shut down the plant to complete larger maintenance projects. The new plants will provide staff with alternatives to complete maintenance work without compromising water delivery to residents. Right now, if we were to have a maintenance emergency at the plant in the summer, in eight hours we would be out of water in the city, Asquith said. She said that other local municipalities already have two water treatment plants and the city is running out of water in eight and if the city was running out of water in eight hours, that would be a worst-case scenario situation. Asquith also said that climate change and sustainability is a factor in needing another water treatment plant as the city's water source quality and availability is changing. The study will analyze the city's water quality and sources, treatment technologies, and site constraints to propose new treatment locations and water treatment processes. Boulder County Farmers Markets. Here's a question at the market. What happens 
at the farmer's market over the winter. If we had to pick the most commonly asked questions that farmers get and farmer's market employees get, the number one question would be, well, what do you do for work over the winter? And while it may seem to many that our work peaks in the summer and disappears by the new year, running a farmer's market is a year-round effort that requires months of planning, countless spreadsheets, a lot of hard work from our small but mighty team. So while our farmers are ordering seeds and planting their crops and getting ready to dig back into the soil, here's what our Boulder County Farmer's Market team has been up to, getting our vendors lined up for 2024. Every year we open applications for new and returning food vendors to join us at the farmers' markets. This process is open to farmers, ranchers, beekeepers, packaged food producers, and prepared food vendors who operate their farms or businesses in Colorado. We don't allow vendors who make their products out of state, nor can any vendor sell products that they don't make themselves. And while that might seem like a no-brainer, many farmers' markets across the country do not share the same commitment to local producers. Our team ensures the integrity of each vendor selling at our market through a competitive application process. That includes collecting detailed information about their business, setting up phone interviews for new vendors, sampling and scoring new food items to make sure they are up to snuff, and voting in new vendors through our board of directors and membership. It's a lengthy process, but it's what allows us to ensure that we're bringing our customers the best of the best each market season. In addition to food vendors, we also use the wintertime to recruit and schedule artisans, musicians, breweries, and community groups to participate in our markets. While our application for food vendors is now closed, others looking to participate in the market are still encouraged to apply by visiting the website www.bcfmmarket.com. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's three W's www.bcfm.org, as we all know, stands for Boulder County Farmers Market. Expanding food access to our community. You may have heard of programs like Double Up Food Bucks. That allows SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program participants, to double their food assistance dollars while shopping at their local farmers markets. But did you know that we can continue to offer food access programs throughout the winter months? Customers that use SNAP may place orders using Double Up Food Bucks through our online store. That operates year-round and helps farmers distribute winter crops like squash and radishes, potatoes and onions. Each week we also pack bags of groceries for local families that participate in WIC. That's, of course, the Women, Infant, and Children program that get delivered to households across Boulder County by our volunteer drivers. Building a food hub from the ground up. It's no secret that a lot of things changed after the pandemic. When we couldn't host our on-street markets, we pivoted to pilot a curbside distribution program, and that curbside distribution program has continued to this day. Through a warehouse in Longmont, we order food in bulk from local food vendors that then go out to our community through our online store, which served over 700 customers last year, as well as our food access programs. Last week, we finished up our 
sold-out winter market share, which provided eight weeks of groceries to residents of Boulder, Longmont, and Lafayette. With this momentum, we began exploring how we could expand these efforts to establish a local food hub model that helps reach new customers while furthering our mission to support local agriculture. We're excited to share where this takes us in 2024. So do stay up to date on our columns and subscribe to the e-newsletter for updates and eating locally, of course. You can make sure that the Boulder County Farmers Markets team work hard so that we can play hard and we prefer to play with food. Some of our favorite treats this winter have included West Cliff goat cheese, Red Wagon Farm squash, and farm fresh eggs from Croft Family Farm, as well as Wisdom Natural Poultry, and Hazel Dell mushrooms, El Porcellino salumi, and Kelly Jean's microgreens. That allows us to get nutrients and fresh greens even on the coldest winter days. Those are just a few of the delicious vendors that keep our online market stocked until the abundance of summer returns. So, while we all patiently wait until the first weekend of April for the on-street markets to fill our Saturday mornings again, remember that local food is available all year round. You just have to know where to look. And you can start by trying to shop at www.bcfm.org. And now we turn to news from Erie, Boulder County residents. will vote for a coroner in the November election as opposed to an appointee serving the entire remainder of former coroner Emma Hall's entire term. Hall resigned in December following an internal investigation that affirmed workplace complaints from employees, including favoritism, antagonism, and micromanagement. Boulder County officials initially said that an appointee would serve the remainder of Hall's term, which would have ended January 2027. However, the Colorado Secretary of State's office informed Boulder County that it would prefer the county appointee serve only until a coroner is elected in the next general election. But in a release sent on February 1st, the Boulder County Commissioners made the announcement that county residents will vote for the new coroner in the next general election. The individual elected in November will complete the rest of Hall's term until January of 2027. Applications for the appointed position are closed, but interviews will be held February 13th in the Commissioner's Hearing Room, and members of the public are invited to observe the interviews in person, online via Zoom or by phone. No registration is required, but you'll have to go to bouldercounty.gov to look that up. And to serve as the Boulder County coroner, applicants must have earned a high school diploma, be a resident of Boulder County at the time of appointment, be over the age of 18 years old, be a citizen of the United States, and not have a felony conviction. The coroner is responsible for day-to-day -day administration of the office as well as daily management cases. And the coroner is also responsible for determining the cause and manner of death for cases in Boulder County. Annual pay at the job is currently set for set at $131,000, and that's set by state law. And here's the eerie story I was looking for. Erie Volunteer Victim Advocate Training starting in April. 
It's the academy starting in April where volunteers can provide support for people impacted by crime or tragedy. Volunteer victim advocates work with, or, or the volunteer victim advocates work as a liaison between the victim and law enforcement immediately after an incident. The training academy covers intervention techniques, active listening, victimology, victim rights, criminal justice information, and more. Applications to join this victim advocate training are due by March 31st. They are available uh, on the Erie government website under Erie Advocate Application. And that is www.erieco.gov. And there's also a whole section on victim services. Here's a Colorado statewide um, article, and it has to do with uh, Boulder Democratic sponsors. State legislators back a ban on poison used in suicides. At first, Bruce Brown thought the substance in his son's room was a performance supplement, like the plastic bottles alongside it. He'd never heard of sodium nitrite, so he searched for it on the Internet, but he accidentally typed in the wrong word, searching instead for sodium nitrate, not nitrite. Still, even the results for the wrong substance set off an alarm in Bruce Brown's head. It just didn't seem something like something that his son Bennett would or should be taking, so he texted his son. The next day, Bennett died by suicide, and he was only 17. He had ordered a highly concentrated amount of sodium nitrite, which is a salt used as a preservative on meats. He ordered it from a sporting goods store from out of state. It cost less than a movie ticket, and it arrived with a two-day shipping. The store knew what he was likely using this product for. Brown, who is a former prosecutor living in Clear Creek County, told Colorado legislators on February 1st, I sent an investigator there after he died. And what did the store manager say? Sure, we know people are killing themselves with this. Not our problem. Bennett, who would have turned 19 years old this week, is one of at least 29 Coloradans who have died by suicide after ingesting sodium nitrite since 2018, according to Colorado State data. Hundreds more have died nationally after taking a poison that could be purchased on Amazon or in sporting goods stores and elsewhere on the Internet. Reviews for the product on Amazon were filled with pleading warnings from grieving families, according to an attorney who later sued the company. As lawmakers in other states and at the national level scrutinize the availability of the substance, Colorado may be on the verge of banning it in its most deadly form. On February 1st, after testimony from three families who had lost loved ones to it, a bipartisan and emotional committee of state lawmakers unanimously advanced House Bill 24-1081. HB 24-1081 would ban the sale of high-potency sodium nitrite, more than 10% pure to Coloradans except approved 
commercial businesses in a bid to slow deaths in a state that regularly has one of the highest suicide, suicide rates in the country. The substance that Bennett ordered was 97% pure, his father said. It is incumbent on us to do what we can to save lives, said Representative Judy Amabile, or Amable, the Boulder Democrat who's co-sponsoring a bill with Representative Mark Catlin, a Montrose Republican, and this bill will save lives. The bill, which also requires the use of warning labels on approved sales to highlight the substance's lethality, was scheduled for its first of two full votes in the Colorado House on February 6th. No group or person has registered to oppose it, according to lobbying data from the Colorado Secretary of State's office. Regulators and lawyers elsewhere previously have sought to limit the poison's availability. Carrie Goldberg, who is a New York-based attorney, told lawmakers that she currently represents 12 families in five separate lawsuits filed against Amazon. Two U.S. senators sponsored a bill last July to ban the sale of high-concentrate sodium nitrite, similar to Colorado's approach, and federal lawmakers sought answers about sales of the substance from Amazon in 2022. Legislators in California and New York have both considered, and California passed, age-based bans on the poison intending to limit its sales to younger people. But Colorado data indicates that it's used by more than teenagers. According to figures provided by the State Department of Public Health and Environment, 23 of the recent deaths here have been in Colorado residents who were 25 years or older. Eva Bile and, and Brown said that they suspect that more Coloradans and more Americans were dying of the poison than data suggests. The use of sodium nitrite in suicide is increasing thanks to online boosters, they said, but testing for it is still not universal. And now turning to news from Louisville. Louisville is delaying the discussion of Red Tail Ridge development proposal. The Louisville City Council unanimously voted on Tuesday to delay the public hearing for the Red Tail Ridge preliminary subdivision plat. This has been delayed to February 20th without taking any public comment or voting on the matters. Council members have previously postponed Red Tail Ridge discussions in December after the council failed to meet a quorum. However, Louisville staffers included dozens of emails from residents in an agenda meeting packet, with many of those emails stating that the development planners do not have the long-term good of residents in mind. Some residents said that the resolution should not be considered until the developer has approval from the Northwest Parkway Public Highway Authority a public board that administers the toll road that comes close to the proposed development's front door. Many of the emails said that the development would ruin Louisville's small-town charm due to an increase in traffic. Many also said that the development would be bad for wildlife habitat on the property. And a Vista Hospital representative spoke at the meeting, saying that a relocation to Red Tail Ridge would help the hospital to provide more services to the community, Louisville and Boulder County.
Advent Health, owner of Avista Hospital at 100 Health Park Drive, southeast of the site, had hoped that a new hospital would be under construction by now at Red Tail Ridge, said Dan Anderson, who is Chief Financial Officer for Advent Health in the Rocky Mountain region. The simple move from our current location to Red Tail Ridge will direct access from Northwest Parkway and US 36 and provide better life safety access to over 40,000 community members, Anderson said. Community Development Director Rob Zaccaro said the city resolution proposes that the land be developed following the ConocoPhillips Campus General Development Plan that was approved back in 2010 by the Council. The ConocoPhillips Campus GDP is the governing, governing development plan for the property. The 389-acre property north of U.S. 36 was the home of the former Storage Tech Corporation, a computer data storage company that was bought by Micro Sun Microsystems back in 2005. Then, ConocoPhillips bought the property in 2008 and demolished the previous buildings in 2009. Erie had previously approved a general development plan for the site in 2021, but that was struck down by Louisville voters. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. This is all Louisville. Yep. The Louisville voters in 2022 after the citizen referendum. Zuccaro said that when a new developer wants to build, whether residential or commercial, city, Louisville, rules require that the set amount of land be set aside for public parks and open space, public facilities, or schools. Zuccaro said 81 acres of the total 389-acre property is exempt from the public land dedication minimum requirement. In this case, City ordinance requires that a private developer dedicate 31.7 acres to the city, and the proposing 139 acres as public land, Zakara stated. Of those 139 acres, 47.4 acres will be dedicated public land north of the project in unincorporated Boulder County near Paradise Lane. The applicant also proposes an additional 15 acres to be private open space and maintained by a Red Tail Ridge Metro District. Zuccaro said if the preliminary plat is approved, the council will also need to review a final plat application which would outline what public infrastructure the developer needs to put in. Council member Caleb Dickinson clarified that in the future final plat resolution, there will be specific improvement agreement for the applicant Sterling Bay's contribution to road improvements in the property. That applicant is in the process of discussing agreements with the Northwest Parkway Public Highway Authority for road improvements. Louisville staff recommend approval of the resolution with the condition that prior to final approval, the applicant must have final approval from approval from the Northwest Parkway Authority for expansion and address concerns from the traffic and mobility study. Council member Dietrich Hoffner had excused himself from the Red Tail Ridge discussion due to a professional conflict of interest. In more Louisville news, Tim Bierman is Bierman, named to Louisville's Ward Number 1 seat. The Louisville City Council has unanimously voted to name Tim Bierman as the Ward 1 representative after a lengthy public comment period. Bierman will serve 
as Ward 1 representative until the November election. During a January 30th special meeting, the council voted 5 to 1 to appoint him to fill the Ward 1 seat. One council member voted to appoint Josh Cooperman, but the votes were anonymous. Mayor Chris Lay said that the January 30th vote was informal and meant to decide who to appoint, whereas Tuesday's vote was to formally appoint a candidate. The council ultimately decided to stick to its decision to appoint Beardman. During a public comment on Tuesday, many residents spoke in support of Cooperman, pointing out that Cooperman's frequent attendance at council meetings, his dedication to helping Louisville lower its carbon footprint, and how Cooperman's background as a scientist can be beneficial to the city. Mayor Chris Lay said that all three candidates were interviewed for the vacancy and that they were all highly qualified for the role. It's not a perfect process, said Mayor Chris Lay, but nobody imagines it to be that way. The seat was vacated after Lay was elected as mayor, leaving his previous Ward 1 representative seat vacant. Councilmember Caleb Dickinson agreed with Lay in saying that the appointment process is imperfect. He said that appointments are not the way council members should serve, but that the appointment will only last until November. He said that in November, Ward 1 residents can vote for whomever they want to be their next representative. It's really a hard choice when you have two wonderful people, both of whom would do a wonderful job. Dickinson said. Council member Dietrich Hoffner said there's no way that the council can know the true wants of Ward 1 residents, which is why the term of the appointment of the council member is just temporary. We don't think we know who Ward 1 would pick, which is why we need to have the election in November, Hoffner said. After Biermann took oath of office, he immediately went to sit at the dais with the rest of the council members. Visit helps county schools support heavy influx of migrant students. About 60 educators from 19 school districts visited Boulder Valley School District's newcomer programs on February 1st as they work to better support an influx of migrant students that's challenging districts statewide. The group, led by people at the Colorado Department of Education, visited newcomer programs at Boulder High School, 1604 Arapahoe Avenue in Boulder, and Santaris High School at 10300 West South Boulder Road in Lafayette, as well as a new program that's been started at Arapahoe Ridge High School at 6600 Arapahoe Road in Boulder. This was all in October to help migrant students more quickly earn the credits that they need to graduate. Districts are trying to learn from each other on what is working best, said Lindsay Jake Kell, the executive director of the Colorado Department of Education. Boulder Valley was one of the first districts that the group visited with several other districts visits planned this spring. School districts that participated in the Boulder Valley visit included St. Brain Valley, Adams 12, Aurora Public High School or Aurora Public Schools, and Denver Public Schools. Denver has seen the largest numbers of migrant students with more than 2,800 students enrolling since the summer. While Denver has been the most impacted, districts across the state are reporting more students who are new to the country as migrant families move after their time in Denver shelters run out, Jay Cole said. The volume of students as well as their high mobility is especially challenging. 
Many of the students arrived after the state's official enrollment count in October. That means districts are not receiving state funding for those students this school year. Denver Public Schools is estimating a $17.5 million shortfall as reported by the Denver Post and is asking the state to provide more resources for migrant students. In Boulder Valley, officials said the district has enrolled about 607 newcomer students in the last year, including about 240 newcomer students who started after the October count. It is a very fluid situation, J. Cole said. Districts need resources and staffing and materials. Some need books and desks and chairs. We're doing our best to support our educators, who in turn are supporting students and helping connect families to resources. Boulder Valley offers newcomer groups at elementary schools and classes at middle schools. At high school, Boulder High and Centaurus both offer a newcomers program to help students learn the language and acclimate to a large high school but the school district's engagement specialists were still seeing newcomer students drop out, with students saying that they needed to work and couldn't coordinate work schedules with attending a full day of high school. So Assistant Superintendent of School Leadership, Robin Fernandez, asked Arapahoe Ridge to come up with another option. Because of its alternative education campus designation from the state, Arapahoe Ridge Principal Joan Blue Dorn said the school has more flexibility than a traditional high school. She added that placing newcomer students at alternative education campuses might be a good solution for other districts looking for the best way to ramp up programs and support incoming migrant students. Arapahoe Ridge, for example, has already had creative options to help students earn credits quickly, as well as transportation and services to connect students with community resources. Arapahoe Ridge also shares a campus with the district's career and technical education program and offers several college concurrent enrollment options. For the newcomer program, about a dozen students are taking three classes in the morning, two focused on earning credits through a credit recovery model, plus an art class. They can return to their home high school where they're concurrently enrolled to take more elective classes and participate in sports or other activities in the afternoon. Those with jobs also earn elective credits for their work experience. Antonia Garcia, who is teaching the credit recovery part of the program, said the goal is to find a path that works for each student, from those who were advanced in their home countries to a student who stopped attending school in fourth grade. We just keep trying, and we just keep wanting to push that feeling of belonging, Garcia said. Along with hearing from teachers and principals, the visiting educators heard from migrant students. One girl said that she has always been responsible, walking two to three hours to school when she lived in Honduras. Here, the girl said, it's much easier to get to class. A classmate added that he appreciates having a bus that's safe to take him to school. Another student said that she appreciates how quickly she can move through the class material at Arapahoe Ridge in the self-paced classes, while learning in Spanish as well as English is helping her learn English faster. Santiago, a junior who attends Arapahoe Ridge and Broomfield High School, said that he fell behind in credits while he was learning English. Here I have people who speak Spanish, he said. I can get credits faster and I can get support faster.
And for you astronomy-loving fans, wait till you hear this article here. CU Boulder instrument to land on the moon's south pole this month. Astrophysicists at the University of Colorado Boulder will be involved in the first United States technological landing on the moon this month since Apollo 17 back in 1972. A spacecraft carrying an instrument that CU Boulder helped build called the radio wave observations at the lunar surface of the photoelectron sheath. That's really the name. Will land on the south pole of the moon by the end of February. We are going to the surface of the moon for the first time in over 50 years, said Jack Burns, CU Boulder astrophysicist and co-investigator on the R-O-L-S-E-S instrument. ROLSUS is made up of four radio monopole antennas and associated electronics that all together weigh about 30 pounds. Once ROLSUS is on the moon, a team involving CU Boulder researchers will collect data about electrical charges that scientists suspect hover above the moon's surface that could pose a hazard for future lunar explorers. The researchers also hope to observe radio waves coming from around the Earth. Rolsus will observe outputs from the sun. We have an opportunity to observe radio signatures of electron beams and shock waves leaving the sun that may adversely impact Earth, said Nachumutik Gopalswamy, who works for the Heliophysics Science Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Rolsus will be a pathfinder in setting up future radio observatories on the moon. Rolsus is part of the first mission in NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative. NASA is working with companies through the initiative to deliver new technology to the lunar surface as it prepares to send humans back to the moon with Artemis II, which is set to launch no earlier than September of 2025. BMOCA announces request for qualifications for future North Boulder Creative Campus. The Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art and Emerald Development have announced the opening of a request for qualifications for potential designers for a major development project in North Boulder's Art District. When complete, the 100,000-square-foot North Boulder Creative Campus is expected to include housing, retail, art studio space, light industrial use, and community green spaces. It will also be home to a new custom-designed location for BMOCA. City Council members expressed overwhelming support for the vision for the campus at its meeting in July. The project seeks to reflect the dynamic spirit of North Boulder, promoting the blend of creativity, urban living, and environmental sustainability. The chosen design team will need to demonstrate a track record of innovative architectural design and a commitment to community-centric development, it released stated. Thomas Mendez, BMOCA board chair, stated in the news release, the board of directors is excited to see the array of creative visions that would be presented for the North Boulder Creative Campus. This is a unique opportunity for designers to leave a lasting impact on Boulder's cultural and architectural landscape and creating a home to further 
BMOCA's community impact for the next 50 years. Interested design teams may submit their qualifications and portfolios, but it's not necessary to provide a concept design for the project at this time, but submissions are due by March 15th www.trestlestrategy.com backslash Novo Creative Campus is the website. And now we turn to news from Niwa and Gun Barrel by reading articles from the Left Hand Valley Courier. Get ready to whine about winter in Niwa. Although Poxitani Phil has determined that spring is right around the corner based on last weekend's storm, winter seems determined to hang around. One upcoming event might offer some relief. Let's whine about winter in Niwot. Sponsored by the Niwot Cultural Arts Association, the annual Let's Whine About Winter event is planned for Saturday, February 24th to welcome community members in from the cold with wine, art, food, and hospitality. Kristen Alger, who is co-chair of the event with Ann Possle, shared her excitement. I've gone every time since it started, and it's definitely my favorite event of the year. Once we had a huge snowstorm, and you couldn't even see to the end of 2nd Avenue, but I think that was my favorite. It was so much fun plowing through the snow and warming up at each stop with friends. And wine, she said. The event will run from 1 o'clock till 5 p.m. at participating 2nd Avenue and Cottonwood Square businesses. Although organizers are still finalizing details for the February 24th event, they they expect that as many as 30 venues will put out their welcome mats. Last year, participating businesses included Belterra Floral, Blessings Day Spa, Blue Sky Crafts, Chimneys, Chico's Grooming Spa, Classic Looks, DRF Real Estate Slipper Smith in Frampton, View of a Kind Vintage in Mercantile, Fly Away Home, Inkberry Books, Little Bird, The Little Shop, and many, many more. Volunteers from the Niwot Community Connection will also be available to help distribute mugs and answer questions. It's not free. However, tickets will cost $35, and you purchase a membership in the Let's Wine About Winter Club. Those tickets can be purchased in advance at Eventbrite. Event guests will also receive a mug, options for wine and snacks at each of the venues, and a $10 coupon that they can use at participating businesses. Early orders are encouraged so that businesses can plan for the number of food and drinks to have on hand. But there are a limited number of $40 day of tickets available. Groups of 10 or more can purchase tickets for $30 each. All tickets can be picked up the day of the event at Compass Real Estate, the Niwot Group at 7915 Niwot Road. Apostle explained that funds paid towards the event are ultimately going to be put to good use. All proceeds go to the Niwot Cultural Arts Association to be used to maintain Children's Park and Whistle Stop Park. We have had blizzards in past years and 60-degree weather, so every year, regardless of the weather, people say it was the best ever. Apostle is available to answer any questions community members might have, and she can help with arrangements for larger group sales. Anyone with inquiries or who is needing more than 10 tickets can contact her at Osmosis Gallery, 303-652-2668. Again, that's questions for the Wine About Winter event, February 24th in Niwa. 
left-hand Laurel Rick Clark and Bob Stather. Rich, oh, Rick Clark and Bob Stather are the latest recipients of the Left Hand Valley Courier's Left Hand Laurel for their contributions to local music, most notably as members of the Niwak Community Semi-Marching Free Grange Band. The Niwak Community Semi-Marching Free Grange Band was formed in 2005, and it's iconic in the Niwak community. The band plays local events such as Rock and Rails, the July 4th Breakfast and Parade, Enchanted Evening, the, hol- the Christmas Holiday Parade, and Niwak High School basketball games, as well as other events throughout the year. Rick Clark and his wife, Kay Stevens, moved to the Boulder County with IBM from Maryland back in 1989. The Heatherwood resident initially met Biff Warren at the Niwak United Methodist Church, where they sang in a choir together. Warren had helped organize the community band and asked Clark to join. The rest is a rich history of musical performance and camaraderie. Bob Stadher moved to Niwak from California in 2003. He was living in San Luis Obispo with his wife and five children when they decided that they needed a bigger place. Niwak offered him not only a house with more space, but a town that felt just right. Stadher, who lived lives in Pepper Tree, met Warren at a church musical performance in Louisville with Warren on trombone and Stather on alto saxophone. As Stather remembers, Warren hooked him on the band and he's been playing with them ever since. Both Clark and Stather started playing musical instruments around the age of five. Clark started with the saxophone since that was the instrument his parents played. Clark's family moved frequently to support his father's job with IPM. With each move, his parents would find a band for him to join. Clark continued to play in bands through college, where he was part of both the marching and concert bands at Lehigh University. Stather didn't come from a family of musicians, but he was curious and prescient enough to say yes when his parents asked him if he wanted to start taking music lessons while growing up in California's Central Valley. Stather learned how to build and fix things from his father, who, prior to owning a hardware store, served service jukeboxes and installed associated sound systems. Stadter's musical entrance continued through college, where, while he was obtaining his degree in electrical engineering at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, Obispo he was a member of the school's Dixieland and jazz bands. He also served as both band's equipment manager. While both men played the saxophone growing up, including soprano, alto, and tenor saxes, they now both enjoy playing other instruments as well. For Clark, that instrument is the mountain dulcimer, and for Stather, it's the wind synthesizer. Stather has also passed along his love for music to his children, and with his son Aaron on drums and his daughter Kristen on clarinet, having played with the community band at times. Stather's service to others in support of his love for music continues to this day with the Niwak Community Semi-Marching Free Grange Band where he is the equipment manager. Small shows may involve just two battery-powered amps and a wireless mic, and larger shows might include more amps and larger speakers on poles. Either way, Stather brings his own equipment and is prepared and is ready to support the band. 
He also sets up the lighting for the band at Enchanted Evening Performance the day after Thanksgiving. Stather performs each Sunday at a parish in Arvada, consistent with his job as chief engineer at PS Studio or PS Audio. He enjoyed designing the audio system and implementing and assembling the console for St. Francis of Assisi Roman Catholic Church in Longmont, where the church acquired an organ back in 2021. Clark's service to others in support of his love for music is expressed by teaching dulcimer lessons, including to Warren's daughter, Katie Warren, who is also a member of the community band, and by recording the Niwak Community Semi-Marching Free Grand Grange Band's rehearsals and performances. Clark originally started recording the rehearsals for himself, where he would isolate his part, which is tenor sax, in order to practice prior to their performances. Over time, other band members started to ask for their isolated rehearsal recordings so that they could practice more effectively as well. So now, Clark maintains a website with links to almost every song in the band's repertoire, which now represents over 200 pieces. That allows band members to practice at home when they can't make a rehearsal. And it also allows groups such as the Niwat High School cheerleaders to learn routines to the band songs when the band performs as a pep band. Both men enjoy being a Niwat band because of the camaraderie and making of music and enjoyment they get from bringing their unique musical expression to the songs they play. So next time you listen to the Niwak Community uh-huh. Semi-Marching Free Grange Band, give Clark and Stad her, the entire band, an extra-long round of applause in support of the smiles that they bring to our faces, all their hard work, and the way their music makes us feel. And here's some news about Niwak High School. When it comes to the multitude of success stories coming out of Niwot High School these days, the statistics speak for themselves. Academically, NHS remains the only school in the St. Vrain Valley School District with an international baccalaureate, that's the IB program, in which there is a 40% participation rate. An impressive 72% of students are taking at least one IB or advanced placement AP class and NHS students currently boast one of the highest SAT scores in the district at 1103 and one of the highest PSAT composite scores in the state of Colorado. Niwot High School has been truly a a true destination school, said Principal Eric Rushklaub. 70% of NHS students are open enrolled, and this year's ninth grade students come from 50 different middle schools. With this level of diversity and talent coming from all over our region and state, it's no wonder that students at Niwot High School also excel in all areas of high school life. There are 61 clubs at NHS, and more than 90% of students participate in at least one non-academic activity on campus. The unified programs at Niwot High School help connect students with special needs to the culture fun and success of Niwot's clubs and extracurriculars with programs in theater, bowling, and basketball in its athletic endeavors in the last 10 years. That's 2014 to 2023. NHS boasts 20 team championships, 118 individual state champions, a national team championship that was the NH. 
U.S. Girls Cross Country in 2021 and won 2023-2024 Gatorade National Girls Cross Country Player of the Year, Addison Ritzenhain. Senior Lily Sykes, one of two drum majors in the NHS marching band, chose to open and roll at NIWAT instead of from inside the district. Her resume is impressive, and it also includes being one of two Niwot High School National Merit School Scholar semifinalists this academic year. Whoosh! Sykes is headed abroad this fall. She credits the high school's IB program and academic rigor as keys to her acceptance into college overseas. She also praised the teaching staff, saying, I truly love my teachers at NHS. They are all so wonderful and enthusiastic in the classroom. Another impressive academic statistic is that NHS students in 2023 brought in more than $23 million in college scholarship offers, and they've been accepted into every Ivy League school in recent years. SVVSD Superintendent Don Haddad is very proud of one of his top-performing high schools. As a former NHS principal himself, Don Haddad highlighted the winning tradition of NHS students of both academic and athletic achievements. The SVVSD Guide to High Schools lists NHS as a top 10 high school by the Denver Business Journal and a, a number one for 4A Athletics by Mile High Magazine. Niche, a database that connects families with schools and colleges, utilizes both high school academic and athletic scores and statistics as well as reviews from students and families to come up with school rankings from around the country. So it recently listed NHS as one of the top magnet high schools in Colorado and number eight on its list of best college prep public high schools in Colorado. Karen Ragland, who is current NHS parent and president of the SVVSD Board of Education, has been involved with the Niwot High School for the past several years. She now highlights, or she highlights, how beautiful Niwot's campus and location is, and has seen firsthand how successful the school's current students and alumni are. Whether it's academic, athletic, or one of the school's many clubs and student-led groups, there is something for everyone at Niwot, she said. You've been listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.